0: Welcome back to the Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's *The Wise Man's Fear* page by page. This is page five hundred and sixteen. Back of her neck. If I thought you'd still be on your feet in an hour, I'd take you off them. She reached out and twined her fingers lightly through the hair on the back of my head. The two of us would be enough to start a fire. I froze like a startled deer. "'I cannot say why, except perhaps that I was tired from several days on the road. "'Perhaps it was that I had never been approached in such a forthright manner before. "'Perhaps... "'Perhaps I was young and woefully inexperienced. "'Let us leave it at that. "'I scrambled desperately for something to say, but by the time I found my tongue, "'she'd taken a half-step away and given me a shrewd look. "'I felt my face grow hot, embarrassing me further.' Without thinking, I looked down at the table and the dinner she'd brought. Potato soup, I thought numbly. She gave a small, quiet laugh and touched my shoulder kindly. I'm sorry, lad. You looked like you were a little more... She broke off as if reconsidering her words, then started again. I like the fresh look of you, but I didn't think you were that young. Though she spoke gently, I could hear the smile in her voice. It made my face burn even hotter all the way to my ears. Finally, seeming to realize that anything she said would just embarrass me further, she took her hand off my shoulder. I'll be back to see if you need anything later. I nodded dumbly and watched her go. Her retreat was pleasing, but I was distracted by the sounds of scattered laughter. I looked around to see amusement on the faces of the men sitting at the long tables around me. One group raised their mugs in silent, mocking salute. Another fellow leaned over to pat my back consolingly, saying, Don't take it personal, boy. She's turned all of us away. Feeling as if everyone in the room was watching me, I kept my eyes low and began to eat my dinner. As I tore off pieces of bread and dipped them in my soup, I composed a mental catalogue of the extent of my idiocy. Surreptitiously, I watched the red-haired serving girl entertain and rebuff the ploys of a dozen men as she carried drinks from table to table. I had regained a bit of my composure by the time Martin slid into a chair next to me. You did a good job with Dayton out there, he said without preamble. My spirits lifted a bit. Did I? Martin nodded slightly as his sharp eyes wandered over the crowd that filled the room. Most folk try to bully him, make him feel stupid. He'd have paid you back ten times the trouble if you'd done it that way. He was being stupid, I pointed out, and when you come right down to it, I did bully him. It was his turn to shrug. But you did it smart, so he'll still listen to you. That's the page. My name's Jeremy.
1: I'm Jordana.
2: I'm Nick. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. Might as well get it out of the way here. I don't love the way this this character, Loci, I think her name is, puts itself forward. Doesn't strike me as very realistic. Uh, I think the joke about her retreat being pleasant uh, is equal parts funny and kind of gross. Uh, but it is funny. And... Um, the fact that she turns away everybody, but she immediately goes to Quoth and goes, oh, you're such a hot lad. I'd like to do intense sex to you. Does smack of Mary Suedom, except that he completely drops the ball and doesn't know what to say, which which is nice and funny and good. It's just a little bit weird that this character who like apparently is notoriously uh, difficult to woo uh, has all but disrobed and thrown herself at Quoth. And, uh, but you know, it's also not like the worst thing, you know, honestly, there's worse moments in this book. I don't want to harp on this too much, but I would just want to, you know, it's, it's right there in front of us. Uh, like I said, I think I said yesterday, I don't like hate this, but I don't love it. Uh, interested to hear what Jordana thinks.
1: Yeah. Well, like I think in any other place it would bother me more, but for some reason it feels like it fits a little better here. Maybe, I like it better today than I did last page. And I think part of it is because like we get down more to the specifics of like why she's interested in him, which is the hair. And also I think it's good to have someone who is very forward kind of, she's not getting shot down, but she also made a mistake. And now she has to figure out how to deal with that. And her her response to that mistake i think is not the correct one but i think it's a good one to have in the book because it shows the flaws of this particular character who we're about to oh, see in the Oh you don't think see. that's
2: the correct response i think she's very graceful about how she goes about uh, I think i think down.
1: saying like i think pointing out that he's young is probably not something she has to do he knows he's young he knows that that's what's happening she doesn't need to need to say that like she can just say I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were uncomfortable with that kind of thing. Like, in whatever old-timey way you could do it. But to specifically point out, to say, like, oh, I didn't think you were that young, is to say that to be that young is negative. Like, she's putting a, he already feels awkward in that situation. She doesn't really need to rub it in. <laughs> but it's it, it's entertaining for us, though. Like it is, I think it's the right thing for Rothfuss to have written, because it's entertaining for us to see her but be put in a bit of an awkward situation by him being put in an awkward situation.
0: Yeah, well, and she stops herself from saying something that would embarrass him much more, right? She's about to say like, you know, I thought you were a little older. I thought you like, you know, weren't a virgin. I thought you knew what you were doing uh, is what she stops herself from saying uh, when she breaks off. I don't know. I I really like this scene. It strikes me as I don't know, it feels honest and authentic and like the kind of awkward interaction the two young people might have. Uh, The sense that I get from her is not that she is ensorcelled by his hotness, but more that he's the first likely prospect to come along in a while and that everyone else who frequents this place is like a grizzled, either they're like a country bumpkin or she's uh, sick of them pawing at her uh, or they're just like not her type. You know, clothes just happens to be the first guy she's seen in a while who is her type.
1: I agree with that read, but additionally, I think that there's a, often when you see like, oh, there's this pretty lady and she's very buxom and blah, blah 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 blah. You you get a bit of the she's hot but she's shy. Like that's really like happens a lot, and I kind of like that. She's hot, she knows it, and she's 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 just putting herself out there and she's saying, hey, like, this is the thing I want. And like, to be that forward is not something that you actually see a lot, I feel like. And it's kind of (laughs) nice.
0: Yeah. I mean, she is an archetype, but she's not the like shy girl next door archetype. She's like the sexy, like bar wench archetype, which is a staple of fantasy fiction.
1: But she's a sexy bar wench with a good reason to like him, sort of. Like, she sees a similarity in him that is a, that is something that she's like, I have this, you have this, we have a connection. It's not just like, hey, you're hot, I'm hot, let's do hot stuff. Yeah, Like, it's, it's there's something like, it's just like a little better than normal.
0: Yeah, well, like, that's the thing that I think makes this scene come to life, is that in another kind of story, she would just be like the anonymous hottie that someone was dandling on their knee before they took her up, you know, to the hayloft for a tumble. But she has agency in that she approaches him. And as you say, she has like an interior life. She, she like, it's, she's not just window dressing. She's a character. She has uh, thoughts and feelings of her own. And as you say, this scene Plays out very differently than the typical sexy bar wench scene in a fantasy novel because it's all about how Quoth is an awkward teenager who doesn't know what to do when a girl hits on him.
2: Someone who might be predisposed to critiquing this book might want to point out that this character exists to serve as a bookend uh, to show how Quoth has changed before and after meeting Falurian. Yes? I don't know that
1: that's necessarily negative. Yeah. Because, yes, she's a bookend, but we still get to know things about her. And she, Jeremy's right. She does still have agency.
2: Fair enough. Uh, I think something that's interesting on this page is that we get as good as, as we get of a description of what Cloth looks like now. Where he's now feasibly looking old enough to be like a full-fledged adult, but still, quote, fresh. So... He's no longer looking like a boy. He doesn't look like a teenager. He looks like a full-grown man, but he still looks like, you know, he's still twinking.
0: He still still has big twink energy. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's he's a young man, but he is uh, a man. Um,
1: I I have a I have a question actually, because like you guys are both men. And I'm sure that maybe you grew up with this at some point, like as, as a lady, everyone thinks I'm either 18 or 40. There's no in between. And like, as a, as a teenager, people always thought I was younger. Like there was never anyone who thought I was older. So like, I was wondering for you guys, was there ever a point at which you looked older than you were?
0: I think for me, the big uh, demarcator is whether or not I have a beard. (laughs) Uh, I think especially when I was in my 20s, maybe less often now, but when I was in my 20s, if I was clean shaven, I would always get asked for ID at a bar or if I was like, you know, out at the liquor store. I would never get asked for ID if I had a beard because it made me look like five years older than I was. In other respects, my like my voice dropped pretty early. So uh, this rich sonambulant baritone. Is that we're hearing that I, right now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. This this voice as smooth as butter uh, is something that I have had since I was like 16. So I feel like that has predisposed people to to think of me as like older than I am sometimes. But it, I can't say that I have a lot of experience with it one way or another aside from being carded.
1: Very well. I appreciate your insight.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are certain ages where it's harder to peg.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a, certainly range. Like, you know, you could... You could be in your mid-20s to early 40s and feasibly look a certain way, you know?
0: I also um, think it it's so much in the eye of the beholder, too. Because, like, anyone who is, like, under 18 thinks of everyone who is older th- than them as an adult, even when they're not. And likewise, now I – when I, like, go past a college campus, all of those people are children, even though, oh yeah, not. they all
2: look like babies. They yeah. look like so young when I go by. It's mm. so true.
1: I noticed that the other day, and I thought it was super weird because I, I was like, "There's no way I look that different from how I looked in college." Like, I don't know if I compare two pictures, I feel like I look pretty much the same. So why is it that why is it that these college kids look like to me like they're so young? Like, what is it? I don't understand. <laughs> how is this happening?
0: They have not been weighed down with the cares and burdens of age. I also, I really like the way Quoth is characterized on this page because for once in his life, he is completely at a loss and embarrassed and he has no clever way out of it. So he's just kind of sitting there stewing, which is an extremely relatable feeling as far as I'm concerned. I uh, felt like that a lot when I was a teenager. Um, And then when... A person whose authority he craves, uh, not whose authority, whose approval he craves, in some sense, offers him a little bit of praise, it perks him right up. Because I think he is still feeling inadequate compared to his traveling companions and Martin, most of all, who is the eldest and most experienced of them. So in some sense, when Martin, you know, says, hey, you did a good job, he's like, really, I did? And I, like that I feel too. like
1: saying that, like, did I? I feel like saying that out loud might have, like, he might have given himself away a little bit there. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. I, I sort of feel like Martin is a good judge of character, and in addition to correctly assessing that Quoth needs a win right here, also probably has assessed that, like, Quoth is not sure if he did the right thing with Deden, and is, is saying this to him in order to lift him up. Like, I think Martin might be a bit more sophisticated than he lets on.
0: Yeah, well, this is, Martin is a good, like, Martin is actually kind of a good leader, even though he doesn't want to be the leader, because he knows the right thing to do and say to pick both up off his off his ass.
2: Yeah, well, as we'll learn on tomorrow's page, he's very insightful. He has a really good sense of what makes people tick and what their kind of unspoken desires are. And he's correct. He correctly pegs that Hespi and Dayton are in kind of an unrequited will they won't they situation. Uh, so I, I wouldn't put it past him to have immediately clocked that Foth isn't sure if he made the right call with Dayton, and that he also has gone, all right, this kid is actually doing a good job. So I'm going to give him a bit of a bit of a pep talk. But like in a in a subtle way, I'm going to tell him what he something that he'll feel good hearing, uh, but not be like condescending about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. If there's one way to make both mad at you, it's to condescend to him, which is what Dayton did. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any other thoughts on this page? I'm all done. Then
2: let's read a little letter. Mailbag. This letter is from the Devil and Daniel, who writes on crackpot theories and demon devi. Hi, Nick and Jorty and Jerry. I hope this email finds you well and that you're enjoying your time away from the podcast. Thus far, I've emailed in response to content discussed in your podcast based on my understanding of the text. Today, I'm going to try something different and test a crackpot theory I've toyed with throughout my many readings of the books. I haven't seen any reference to this theory online and look forward to hearing you affirm or tear apart my crackpottery as you see fit. As mentioned, I've read the series many, many times. With each reading, I find myself looking for Chandrian around every corner, trying to fit each character into the poem about the Chandrian shared by Shaheen, which I've repeated here below. I believe this is the most reliable information about the Chandrian we've encountered thus far, due to the age of the story, the way it's told, and the Adem's understanding of the power of names. Cyphis bears the blue flame. Sturcus is in thrall of iron. Ferul, chill and dark of eye. Uznea lives in nothing but decay. Grey Dalcenti never speaks. Pale Alenta brings the blight. Last there is the lord of seven. Hated, hopeless, sleepless, sane. Alexel bears the shadow's hame. We know that Alexal is Haliax's is Lanra, and that Feral is Cinder. I believe we can also say with confidence that Master Ash is Cinder, eh, given Kvothsnack for naming, Farron, Foru, Fordale, Ash and Cinder are roughly synonymous. Whether or not Master Ash and Brayden are one and the same, I'm inclined to believe is unknown at this point and won't be discussed in this email. Other than these two Chandrian, we know very little, if anything, about the other five. Which leads me to my question, what if Devi is a Chandrian? Specifically, what if Devi is Uznea? We know that at least one of the Chandrian are female, and while I'm hoping this isn't true given my love of Devi as a character, it's a question I've asked myself a number of times throughout my rereads. We know that the Chandrian are masters of hiding their signs, and that Devi lives above a butcher shop that always smells of rancid or spoiled meat. It's easy to think that Devi living above a butcher shop is an insignificant detail, but given Rothfuss's love of hiding things in plain sight, I think there, more, there may be more to this than meets the eye. Devi explains living above a rancid-smelling butcher shop by saying she started living there initially because the rent was good and hasn't moved because her customer has nowhere to find her. What if that's not the reason why? What if the decay is a sign that would give her away? How better to hide the sign of decay than to live above the shop people would expect to smell that way? Furthermore, Debbie's flat is always described as smelling of perfumes. How better to hide the smell of decay internally than with the use of perfumes or incense? Uh, we know that she was expelled from the university at an early age. Despite this, she was already immensely powerful and could duel Sadal, the master of sympathy. Devi is referred to as Demon Devi. While this could simply be a well-deserved nickname, given her power at such a young age, we also know that the word demon is used by common folk to describe supernatural or non-human entities in Temerant that they don't understand. Devi is obsessed with finding access to the archives. While the significance of the archives is still a question of debate, we understand the pruning of knowledge about the Amir and Chandrian to be significant. As well, it is the location of the four-plate door, which we believe something, possibly Eax may be locked away. If Devi is a Chandrian, then there could be a sinister reason she wants to access the archives directly related to this struggle, such as opening the door, destroying books, etc. It's also worth noting that Usnea is a real-world genus of lichens. I have no theory about this connection, and mentioned only in case you or your listeners have some knowledge of lichens that would connect it to this, this theory. Sincerely, signed, The Devil and Daniel. Well, uh, I must say that uh, I did not know that there was a species of werewolf named uh,
0: Usnea, but uh, I'm pleased to hear it. Yeah, like for me, the only way this theory works at all is if the Chandrian are like werewolves and that they can like sort of pass for human until they're until they decide to Chandrinoid out. But even still, I'm sorry, I, it just doesn't seem likely. She has too well an established history in and around the university for that to seem likely to me.
2: And she does show up outside of her place and no one comments on the stink. Although maybe she is perfumed, not sure. I like it. I'm I'm always ready for a delicious betrayal. And I also am constantly on the lookout for chandronoids. So I think that there's a lot of circumstantial evidence it's one of those things that if it ends up being true, we get to go. We called it, but if it's not, then we don't have to think about it ever again.
1: I think that if Devi is indeed a Chandronoid, then maybe the Chandronoids not so bad, and maybe they have a good reason to get.
2: Yeah, into, aren't we all in agreement their... that the Chandronoids are actually the good guys? We are not absolutely not guys? in agreement on that point, sir. Close <laughs> on the wrong side. I think that's pretty much established. I'm taking that as red. Yeah, you. I, I are. think this
1: is one of those moments where uh, Nick is just ignoring Jeremy entirely.
2: <laughs> I'm taking that as Reg.
0: Mm. Oh no, you don't! You take not- Reg's I- name in vain, sir. <laughs> Do not put his holy works to your profane purpose.
2: How dare you stand where he stood? Uh, we've gone quite long, uh, but this was a gas, much like the stench emanating from Debbie. We'll catch you tomorrow for yet another page
0: of the The Wings.